The AI chatbot, GoogleBard, is happy to answer most questions with confidence and creativity. What most people don't realize, however, writes Bloomberg journalist Davey Alba, is that ensuring that these answers are well-sourced and based on evidence falls to thousands of outside contractors who can make as little as $14 an hour and labor with minimal training under frenzied deadlines. According to current Google contract workers, the size of their workload and complexity of their tasks has increased as the AI chatbot war heats up. Without specific expertise, they're trusted to assess answers in subjects ranging from medication doses to state laws. And documents shared with Bloomberg show that these convoluted instructions that workers must apply to the tasks and deadlines for auditing answers can be as short as three minutes. Computational linguistics professor Emily Bender says that the work of these contractors and staffers at Google and other technology platforms is a labor exploitation story, pointing to their precarious job security and how some of these kinds of workers are paid well below a living wage. In a time where the interest in deploying AI is rampant, how must we safely and ethically protect employees that help create and control this technology? Moreover, how must we do so in a meaningful and responsible way that protects everybody, including the real people behind these AI chatbots? We welcome you to the Responsible Use of AI podcast, a podcast committed to fostering conversations amongst a diverse array of scholars. Together, we delve into the intricacies of AI technologies and tools, scrutinizing their implications and the ethical responsibilities we must shoulder before their widespread deployment. Because AI holds the potential to radically disrupt many sectors, our mission is to help ensure that the transformative power of AI is as beneficial and equitable as possible. For example, AI in healthcare stands out as a key sector for disruption. For diseases like colorectal cancer, AI has shown immense promise in predictive analytics, diagnosis, and prognostic determinations, outperforming human accuracy in some cases. However, despite its potential, a darker side of AI is also evident. Research shows that the AI algorithms and models we create often carry biases, specifically against marginalized and racialized groups. Consequently, AI could have devastating and life-changing impacts on these communities if left unchecked. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Lowen Cologne, and I'm joined by our two co-hosts, Vanessa Ferguson and Akanksha Kondwaha. We begin with acknowledging that we are gathered and recording on indigenous land, specifically the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe, that has been inhabited by indigenous peoples before the land was colonized by settlers. As settlers on indigenous lands, we are grateful for the chance to gather on these lands and commit ourselves to honoring and respecting the generational care and wisdom through our work and with indigenous communities. This means continuing collective efforts to acknowledge and mitigate the harms produced and endured by colonization, which can all become exacerbated in the age of AI. While a land acknowledgement is an important step, we believe that ending settler colonialism and white supremacy are equally as important. So we urge you to move beyond deep considerations and to take action to decolonize these lands and end occupation. In today's episode, we discuss how to think better about data curation for AI systems, specifically when it comes to gender and sexuality in computer science, and especially for and with marginalized communities locally and globally. Our guest is Oz Keys, 
a PhD candidate in the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at the University of Washington. Oz's research focuses on understanding the role that technology plays in constructing the world and how we might construct a better one. Their research spans the intersections of gender, disability, technology, and power, and their current research project explores the past, present, and future of gender-affirming medicine and the politics of scientific efforts to demonstrate its effect on patients. Welcome, Oz. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are very happy that you're here. Can you tell us a little bit about the extent of your research and how it came to be? Yeah, uh, the current project or the uh, sort of more AI-oriented stuff? You know what? Let's start with the, the broader, big-picture kind of AI stuff, and then you can narrow down into your particular project. So people like to say that, uh, you know, they have some long-winded, like, perfect, intricate plan of what research they're going to do. Like, from the age of five, I knew I wanted to be an economist or something. Um, I think this is mostly because people are used to giving elevator pitches in the context of things like job talks. And so it's nice to sound like you know exactly what you're doing all of the time. Um, I ended up doing work on AI largely through a mixture of coincidence and spite. Um, so back in 2011 or 2012, I was working for an organization called the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the charity that runs Wikipedia. Um, and it's a nonprofit, and anyone who's worked in a nonprofit will know that you show up and you find you have three jobs. There's the job that you were actually hired to do, the job that everyone thinks you're there to do, and the job that you end up taking on your own back because someone needs to do it and you care about the mission and there's always more work than there is resourcing. And for me, that third one was sort of uh, data analysis. I, I taught myself to code on the job and started being the sort of um, you know, low level data analyst and, and data scientist. And when they started off a dedicated research team, they brought me on board. And when I eventually ended up in academia, I did so having spent several years in um, in industry, like as a data scientist at that point, uh, multiple companies and organizations. And having seen like through my work and also through just being embedded in the social networks of data oriented researchers, a lot of instances where, um, you know, data was being used in ways that were at best uh, agnostic to the impact they had on human beings. Um, and at worst, actively malicious or, or harmful. Um, and so I ended up deciding that I would study data ethics when I went to grad school, which is very broad and useless. And shortly before I went to grad school, I read a paper that looked at uh, gender in facial recognition and was trying to identify people's gender using facial recognition. And I hated this on a thousand and one different levels. I hated it so much that I wrote a Twitter thread about it and then I still couldn't get it out of my head. So I wrote a blog post about it and then I still couldn't get it out of my head. And I ended up uh, writing a paper about it, uh, which is called The Misgendering Machines. And frustratingly is now my like most popular work. I say frustratingly, not because um, I don't like it, like I love it, uh, but just because it's got 300 plus citations, which is pretty good for a grad student, but also means that everything else I do looks penny ante. Um, and so, yeah, like rather than it being some like long, nice, like, you know, I was born with an R compiler, like, you know, 
stitched into my sheets. It was a series of like, I ended up doing this job. I got way too into it. I ran into a paper on Twitter that I didn't like. I didn't like it so hard. I wrote another paper about how hard I didn't like it. And it like, we're now 13 papers and innumerable book chapters and related things later. And uh, I've sort of accepted that, that this is my lot in life. And then your current project? Also involves a lot of coincidence, but the short version is that uh, I've been studying the history of trans medicine sort of on the side for about five years um, as a trans person myself and as someone who's of what we might call a historicist bent, um, someone who thinks that, you know, you need to know where you're coming from if you want to understand why things work the way they do. Uh, it, it seemed like my dissertation would be this really nice opportunity to um, explore yeah, the history of trans medicine, because right now when you have all these fights going on over, you know, who should be provided with care? Should anyone be provided with care? A lot of people on the, what we might say, the right are saying, well, trans medicine shouldn't be made available because it's experimental. It should be the subject of research, not uh, treatment. And the problem with this from a historicist bent is that trans medicine, first of all, is not new. Um, it's been going for at least a century. Um, and second, that a lot of the time when it has been institutionalized in the past, it has been done so on a research basis. Like universities have said, okay, we'll provide this treatment uh, because we're universities, because we can do research about whether it works or not. Um, and so there are innumerable studies about whether it works. And what's going on right now is less to do with uh, whether it works or not, and it's more to do with the sort of politics and values of what it means for something to work and what standards of evidence we hold different domains of medicine to and what social biases might underlie different standards for different domains of medicine. Um, and so I decided that it would be fun and interesting and useful to look at this history, to unpack how people have tried to answer this question of does it work before and how Simply saying, like, you should treat patients as research subjects in, in its own way undermines the very goal of medicine because you can't ethically treat someone as both a patient and a participant, right? A researcher wants all of their patients to be treated in exactly the same way for the good of the data. A doctor wants their patients to be treated holistically. There's inherently a tension that gets created when you say all these patients are now participants as well. And so I wanted to explore that history and I thought it would be a, um, not a fast project, but you know, like a pretty, pretty rapid pace project. Uh, a year and a half later, I have now done 125 interviews, uh, solved the mystery of D.B. Cooper, uh, reconstructed uh, the medical records of a defunct gender identity clinic using a biography of D.B. Cooper and an index of court cases. And after this podcast, need to send an email to the former U.S. ambassador to the Vatican, who I have enlisted to help me unpick an archival mystery from the late 1960s. It's safe to say that things have gone off on a really strange bent. Those are some wild threads, but I'm glad that you were able to pull them all together. This is very interesting work. Um, uh, should we start with the first question that we have here? Yeah, sure. Um, 
So this past January, you published a blog post titled Counter Science Before Data Science as a cross post to another piece published in Logic Magazine. In the post, you explain the term data activism and how we can best engage in data activism as a response to our current pervasive data-driven world, especially as it concerns healthcare and more specifically trans health. Could you just, sorry, could you describe data activism, the routing around approach to data activism and how these function as counter science in the age of AI? Absolutely. Um, and I would say, yeah, like the example I was using um, was very much about trans healthcare because, you know, that's what I'm working on right now. But I would say, like, I think that, that these tools and these lessons are a lot broader than that in applications. So when we talk about um, data activism, we're using a phrase that has been popularized by um, Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren Klein in a very popular book they put out called uh, Data Feminism. And basically, the position of, of data activists is to say, okay, well, we live in a world that is, you know, horribly, horribly full of data. And let's like say horribly in both senses, like it is everywhere and also it is taking over the world. Um, and one solution to this is to smash all the computers. Another solution to this is to say, okay, if people who have power and are making decisions are now speaking the language of data, as it were, um, then we can use data to change the conversation, to change the narrative, to persuade uh, society to do things differently. Um, one of the examples that they point to of doing this is a historic one from uh, NASA in, I want to say the 60s or 70s, um, in which some women employees gathered together and uh, collected pay data to demonstrate that women, particularly black women who worked at NASA were being underpaid and use that data to advocate for, well, higher pay. Um, and so data activism as it's pitched is kind of a saying, this is the world we live in, therefore these are the tools we have. And if these are the tools we have, we might as well use them. Um, and my essay was kind of pushing back on this a bit, not to say that there is no use in doing things with data, but to say that, if you take a broader look at how power works, how decision-making happens, a lot of the time, even though we live in a very, very data-driven world, data is more the excuse than it is the actual decision-making um, tool. You know, uh, if, if we look at, uh, for example, um, questions of uh, the minimum wage in the United States, right? Uh, we've known for decades data-wise, that a higher minimum wage increases people's livelihoods and you know, happiness and so on and so forth, and doesn't in fact tank the entire economy. The reason that we're not raising the minimum wage is not because we don't have the right graphs. It's because data that agrees with the perspectives of people in power tends to be taken seriously, and data that doesn't tends to be dismissed. And what I'm saying is not that data is useless, um, but that if we're looking at how might we use um, data to, to challenge systems of power, we should be looking to challenge them, not to reinforce the legitimacy of data. You know, when you, to go back to the example of, uh, you know, when you gather data on pay inequity at NASA and you go to the bosses and say, you know, we need to be paid more because this graph says so. On the one hand, yeah, you're getting paid more. 
But on the other hand, you're reinforcing this idea of if it doesn't show up in a graph, it shouldn't be taken seriously. And arguably, we can see the consequences of that in things like the way that um, hostile work environments are dismissed, right? Because it's hard to get them to show up in a graph. And you're reinforcing the idea of ultimately, it's still the director or the director director who gets to decide what happens. Um, and in a place like NASA, you know, fair enough, like there's an organization chart and it has the director at the top. Cool. But if we're thinking more broadly about, say, the relationship between the government and citizens or the relationship between different segments of society, I think it can be dangerous to uh, act as if there's no harm that's done when we say, uh, OK, well, my graph says something different, because what we're doing there is, yeah, maybe challenging what their graph says, but also reinforcing that it's all about the graphs and that they're the ones who need to be persuaded. And so what I advocate is, yeah, what I call the routing around approach, which is not to say that data is irrelevant, but simply to say that instead of using it to try and negotiate with people who have power, we can use it to make that power irrelevant or less relevant. And the example I use is uh, from trans medicine. It's a load of uh, trans women in the 1990s using the early internet to put together a big survey of different people's experiences with different uh, sex reassignment surgery surgeons. And their goal in doing so wasn't to change policy around, you know, surgery or alter the sort of structure of surgery itself. It was simply to inform each other about, okay, if you go to this surgeon and they tell you that it's going to cost 10 grand, they're lying because they charged me five grand last week. Um, this is the surgeon who has the best aesthetic results overall. This is the surgeon who like has the best results, but also the worst results. So if you're not looking to gamble, maybe go with this other one instead. Um, what it's about is less you know, challenging the uh, overall, challenging the, the sort of like outcome of the structures of power and more challenging the relevance of the structures of power. So in the context of NASA, just to finish the example, right? Um, another approach would have been to uh, gather a load of data from outside NASA as well and work out where women are being paid commensurate with their actual talents and say, OK, well, we're all going to screw off over there then. And instead of negotiating with your boss, you are going to get paid better. And whether or not NASA collapses at the end of that is their problem, not your problem to solve. Uh, along those lines, I think in in that blog post, you have this this great line called or where you, you write, what counts is not only conditional on what gets counted, but also who is doing the counting. And I think that speaks to this, this issue of, of power that you're talking about, of like who, who is part of the data collection and curation. And how does that fit, I guess, into your kind of larger scheme of data activism, or is that kind of right on point, this idea that it's not just about getting more data, but it's about who, who is getting the data? Yeah, it's about who is getting the data, and it's also about who has the authority to declare, like, this is good data or this is data in the first place. Um, you know, there's, we can, we can come up with 15 different graphs. It's awesome to have a graph. 
who decides which of those 15 graphs is the one that counts? Because that's the question that matters as much or more than what those 15 graphs are. Nice. Okay. Uh, Akanksha, you want to ask the, we move on to the gender and computing research? I, yeah, I will I, also oh, apologize yeah. here for the fact that um, it is probably about 95 degrees in here. And so if I'm slightly less coherent than usual, that's why. We're just, we're hoping to get you in an altered state of consciousness. So like... Uh... <laughs> Already there. <laughs> <laughs> I did um, have a question about the stuff that you just talked about. Um, with data, you mentioned like what graph really matters, but also how do you as an individual help to collect the data that you want to see in the world, right? Like I think I'm thinking of um, how uh, people have used crime data, quote unquote crime data to say this, to, to like, I don't know, pull up... Um, relationships between uh you know who commits crimes what like address is usually you know the place where crime is committed most but in fact the crime data is just data that police collect right like who did the police arrest it's not about who commits crime it's about who did the police actually arrest for these crimes and so i mean along those lines i was thinking of how the data that we have currently most of it is usually extremely biased, like inherently the way it's collected, the, the way that we use it, and it's used to represent certain things which aren't necessarily correlated, isn't accurate. Um, and so how do you, if you are trying to kind of change perspective um, on this idea of data activism, even like go about collecting data that actually you know doesn't kind of adhere to these kind of hierarchical structures and yeah that's not really a good well-formed question because came up with it on the spot but <laughs> i think it's an interesting question uh, i i'm gonna do the traditional philosopher thing of saying like i think that's kind of two questions and i have like two answers and question <laughs> one is um yeah how do we how do we collect data in a way that evades existing assumptions about, let's say, like who commits the crime, right? Um, if you want to challenge those ideas, you're not just going to have to, um, you know, reanalyze data that's already been presented. You're going to have to go out and collect data all along, which, uh, you know, from the get-go, which is um, a time-consuming process to be very Britishly understated. Um, and I'd say that part of the answer there is you don't. You as an individual don't. I, I think that a lot of a lot of the pushes these days for um, activism that focus on sort of the individual action are in some respects missing the the point, which is that um, the question is sort of what you do collectively. Um, and the answer to that is going to vary from group to group and person to person. But I would say that. Uh, I think that starting from the premise of like there needs to be a whole bunch of us is is a good starting point for whatever the target area is. Um, and the other angle on it though is um, what form this data takes to evade existing assumptions, existing biases. Uh, I don't think that you're ever going to um, be able to completely evade 
those biases, those assumptions, right? Um, but if you're looking at like, how would we challenge them in as much as you know we can? I think part of it has to take the form of challenging data itself or challenging the centrality of data. Uh, when we talk about, um, you know, when we talk about in the case of policing, for example, uh, some crimes being underreported because uh, of the people who commit them or the places that they are committed, you know, that is a problem that can be solved with data. But if what we're talking about is also um, things like some harms not being treated as crimes at all, that's a thing that's harder to capture in data in quantitative you know, forms, in graphs. It's a thing where what you need is um, you know, things like narratives, testimonials, um, effectively charged human stories. And those don't really fit in what we think of as data, but you know, if, if we're talking about data as just contains information, I'd argue they contain information. And uh, I'd also say that if we're looking to challenge and alter assumptions about you know, what the data says, that has to include, again, challenging like what data is or what information should go into making decisions. Hopefully that was more coherent out loud than it was in my head. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think I think I was able to follow. Let's let's shift gears to start talking about uh, gender in computing research. Mm -hmm, sure. Um, so in 2021, you and your colleagues published a paper titled You Keep Using That Word, Ways of Thinking About Gender in Computing Research. In the paper and building on work that questions how gender is measured, you detail how gender is conceptualized and argue for the treatment of gender as multiplicitous when we conceptualize and interpret research. Can you describe what it means to treat gender as multiplicitous and how this works to prevent and mitigate acts of silencing and inequality in the context of computing research and furthermore in the context of AI research and its deployment? Absolutely. Um, so I wrote this paper for a couple of reasons, the first of which was that I really wanted an excuse to use a reference to The Princess Bride in a paper title, and the second of which was that I had been reading research on gender in computing for a while, where the problem was not that they were wrong, but that they were too, um, let's say, almost high level. They were clustering too many things that weren't the same thing. So a lot of the time when we think about gender in um, research, particularly in computing, we think about it in terms of this sort of singular categorical like set of values, right? Like what is the person's gender? Um, how is their experience mediated by what their gender is? And this isn't wrong so much as it is limited. Um, because when you say like, the mediating factor is people's gender, or when you just treat that as one thing, what you do is you end up clustering together a lot of phenomena that might actually end up looking very, very different. So if, for example, we find that um, there is a difference in people's gendered experiences on uh, Twitch or TikTok, which would not shock me at all, um, what does this mean? Where does this come from? If we're just saying gender, we don't really know. We just know that it's there. But 
what if we are more um, fine-grained? What if we say, okay, is it about how people's gender is perceived? Is it about how people's gender is expressed? Is it about how people are taken to adhere to the norms of whatever gender is perceived? Like, let's add some more nuance here. Uh, let's do something more than just say, like, well, there's a gender difference. And let's say, okay, but where is that gender difference coming from? Is it based on people's perceptions of self? Is it based on people's perception uh, by others? Is it based on the gap between these two things? Um, and in the case of AI, you know, I think we see this a lot in terms of uh, like one one interesting example um, that that I've run into recently has been proposals to use uh, generative AI to like generate new data to sort of fill in gaps and absences in um, people's like data sets to fill in like okay, our data set doesn't only contains like it contains 200 men and only 50 women. And so we should use generative AI to synthesize another like 150 women from the original 50 women. Um, and then we'll have a like non-biased data set, right? And there are a thousand different problems with this, but one of the major ones is like, okay, but which women where? And which men where? Like if we treat gender as this, again, like, single label that is categorical, that is ubiquitous, that contains everything that you might point at and go, look, gender, then these questions don't really appear. But once we end up with, um, you know, something more precise, something more granular, something that says, okay, gender has a location to it and it has subtlety to it, um, it matters, you know, gender is not, is, is, who's doing the perceiving, who is being perceived, but it's also like, where is the perception happening and you know by whom? Then we end up asking a lot more nuanced and interesting questions like, okay, you've got those 50 people that you are synthesizing like 200 other people from. Are they all recruited from, um, you know, Bloomington, Indiana? Because if so, it's safe to say that you could synthesize 2 million people from those original 50 people and you'd still have a data set that's got like a pretty narrow range of humanity because you're treating gender as this thing which is just you know it's gender right it it's we all know what that word means and we all mean the same thing when we talk about it and of course we don't it means lots and lots of different things um and so yeah the paper is really about hopefully adding some nuance and specificity to those discussions um, and to research around gender, so that we're not just talking about, you know, men, women, and other, which is a category series that makes me want to open my throat from ear to ear, um, or even talking about like masculinity versus femininity. We're talking about, okay, but like by whose standards and where? And was this self-reported? Like this is how the person feels, or was this how the person is perceived? Or, you know, these all mean different things for how we evaluate um, data, whether that's data we're getting from participants in a study or data in the sense of like AI data sets. And without the nuance, designing any applications is going to be more difficult because you're going to be designing things that might not 
be able to apply to the particular communities and cultures at play. And along those lines, you published another paper titled Speaking from Experience, Trans slash Non-Binary Requirements for Voice-Activated AI. And so this is a paper where you're exploring this very kind of issue where uh, folks have been designing these voice-activated tools in uh, for trans and non-binary folks, but that there's kind of complications in that. So I'm curious what you think researchers and computer scientists need to be mindful of when they're configuring the AI screening or diagnostic or treatment tools kind of along these lines. Yeah, um, so speaking from experience wasn't, I guess, directly about diagnostic and screening tools, but there's definitely sort of some overlap. I, I guess what I'd say is, uh, yeah, a lot of it is, as the title of Speaking from Experience suggests, about nuance, about being in, I guess, an insider position or an outsider position, perspective to what you're studying. Um, but the general, the general bugbear here, the elephant in the room, um, which, speaking from experience, and you keep using that word, and all these papers are really about, is universalism, right? It's this tendency to assume that we see this thing in front of us, therefore this thing is the same everywhere. And carrying from that, we have this solution to the thing in front of us, and it works well for the people in front of us, and therefore it should work well everywhere. Um, I'm not saying, and, and I bring this up to say, I'm not saying like, uh, people should only deploy a thing if it ha works for gender everywhere. What I'm saying is that is impossible. And the, a lot of the harm and violence that we see done, a lot of the erasure, a lot of the um, speaking for rather than with that we see doesn't come from, um, you know, avoidable ignorance alone. It often tends to come from uh, trying to take something that is designed for one very specific situation or one very specific population and then universalize it and apply it everywhere. Um, and that kind of mentality is, I think, really common in engineering where, you know, we're, we're told that the goal is to have like silver bullets, right? But, which I've always been confused by as a turn of phrase because like werewolves aren't real. I don't know if, like, I don't think anyone's fully thought through the implication of like, you're meant to be designing silver bullets. It's like, wait, you're meant to be designing solutions to problems that don't exist. That's, <laughs> you're telling on yourself more than you think you are. In the same way that there's the constant refrain of like referring to companies as unicorns. And I'm like, what, you mean fake? <laughs> That's the highest point of praise you have in this field? <laughs> anyway, so there is this this mentality, I think, in engineering of like, if a solution is a good solution, a proper solution, it'll work everywhere for everyone. And then carrying on from that by implication, anyone it doesn't work for is just an edge case who like, you know, shouldn't be shouldn't be taken seriously. And there are a lot of cultural reasons for this set of assumptions, most of which, but not all, I think stem from the kind of heroic mindset in a lot of technology of like, if you if you tell a bunch of dudes from Napa in cargo shorts that they're changing the world enough times, they'll believe it. Um, but I think it's honestly the harm at the base of, of all of this is this idea of we should be designing to build things that work everywhere for everyone all the time. Because if we start by saying like, you know, society is complex and multifaceted and Gender alone is complex and positional and multifaceted. And that's before we get into anything else. And there is so much else. Um, 
you know, it's hard to imagine a one size fits all solution that actually fits everyone. And by that, I mean, it's impossible to imagine a one size fits all solution that actually fits everyone. And so part of what we were saying in uh, speaking from experience was not just, hey, it would be nice if you asked the people who are subject to your work what they thought of it, but also that um, this goal of like designing the, you know, gendered voice activated AI system is kind of a silly goal. At best, you'll design something that works some of the time and hurts people the rest. At worst, you'll design something that doesn't work and also probably hurts people. And the, a big part of the solution here is, is you know, listening to people from within communities. But the only way to make that tractable and the only way to make the results useful is also to drastically scale down our visions. And by R, I mean engineers. I'm not an engineer, but I still use the plural for some reason. I think because I'm in an engineering department, it, it makes them less hostile than when I show up waving Foucault at them. Um, you know, we need to drastically scale down what our visions of engineering and technology are. Like, you're not saving the world. You're not fixing this thing for everyone, everywhere, always. You are a plumber with a keyboard. You are solving this one particular problem right in front of you. And if a plumber assumed that a patch that they had applied would work on every single pipe, regardless of the material the pipe was made for, the substance that was in it, or the gauge of the pipe, we would call them an idiot. And I think that kind of mentality of, you know, you are fixing the problem in front of you, don't get too big for your britches, is really one that engineering could, could benefit from. Yeah, it's part of this larger problem I think that we're we're seeing and and why we have more need for interdisciplinary work is that being able to solve problems is is only part of the issue. You need to be able to diagnose problems. You need to know like the prioritize problems. There's a whole range of things that go into um, just the 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 problem space before solutions can even begin to be offered. And also, like, I think that's so important, but at the same time, all of these VCs or, you know, people who are funding these kind of, this kind of work, these solutions, they're looking for that, like, one-size-fits-all solution. And um, I was reading this, uh, I think it was uh, a translational AI, which translated English to um, a really uh, uncommon African language. Um, and this was after, I think, OpenAI or I don't know some big company did something similar and it they said that this would this thing this AI will translate all languages like and it will you know it's a solved problem now and so now this company um which obviously is doing a lot like a lot of good work and probably a lot like better work at translating this language that's very specific they aren't getting that funding and they aren't getting the opportunity to like work on this problem that's very specific and it's catered to these specific like people um, because these big companies have these quote unquote like one size fits all solution that is being uh, you know funded and is getting all the money like how do you how do how do people who want to solve these problems even get the ability to do that when pretty much like the whole world doesn't want, doesn't incentivize, in, incentivize it, you know? Yeah, I think that's really real. Um, and 
a big part of, of it, I think, as you're touching on, is this question of um, who has the power to throw resources behind projects. And also, like, intertangle, intertangle with that is the question of, like, what is our model of what AI looks like? Um, you know, I think that's a, a technical a question of, like, the technical economy. It's also a question of what we might call the political economy, right? Um, at the moment, we're used to thinking of AI as this thing that, that someone like Google does, right, where you've got a dedicated data center and a large language model in it, and you need a dedicated data center to even open the file, let alone you know, tinker with it. And so you need these very uh, venture capital-centered um, you know, funding structures. You need uh, a lot of money behind you. You need a lot of expertise behind you. All of that has to be concentrated. Um, one of the things that I have been trying to think more about, uh, including in, in one of my other papers, which is called uh, Artificial Knowing Otherwise, is how this model of AI, this assumption that what Google says they are doing is what AI is or could be, um, has kind of captured our imagination and the imagination of, of critical scholars more broadly in ways that I think are dangerous because it means that we are so focused on imagining that AI has to be this one big company with one big model, um, that we end up in this rut where we say, yeah, like either you play ball with the big venture capital companies who are never going to want to solve one specific problem because they're not actually interested in solving problems. They're interested in making money. And, you know, sometimes that might solve problems, but that's a, a nice bonus for the pitch deck. Um, you know, you either play the venture capitalists game or you dot 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 i don't know like go to academia i think is the the backup plan um and i don't think this is necessarily the case or necessarily has to be at the case the case i think that if we look at the models that we're seeing being a big deal right now things like large language models they're not what ai is or could be they're just a particular form of ai that is prominent and famous because it's being done by these big companies that you know have this, this organized power. And there are a lot of other models of AI that uh, can be distributed, that can run on really, really low cost devices, uh, that can be distributed amongst thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and places um, that are adaptive, where people can actually consent to being involved and split off with their data if they don't want to be. Um, there are ideas of uh, federated um, AI and federated data sets, um, you know, these sort of peer-to-peer -peer and open networks where data and uh, processing power don't end up concentrated. And on the one hand, like, that's a solution to some very nice, well, not a solution, it's a, it, it's a new twist on a very old problem. It, it fixes old problems with the end outcome of creating some new, more interesting ones. Uh, with a lot of like theoretical and sort of more ethical and principled concerns, right? Uh, the consent of people whose data are in models being a big one. But I also think it's a potential resolution to this question of um, more, yeah, of, of sort of the political economy of AI, of how we avoid playing the game that venture capital shows up saying they want to play because they're the only game in town. The answer is we make our own game. Um, 
And we design it in such a way that we don't need all of these financial like overheads to start with, that there isn't this incredibly high barrier to entry, that you don't need um, you know, 15 neuroscientists and a server farm to get started up. I'm glad you mentioned artificial knowing otherwise. I think there's a ton of content in that paper. And and two of the things I, I wanted to bring up and, and have you comment on is one is the importance of integrating feminist and ethical epistemology in, in machine learning and systems, which typically doesn't happen. You're not, again, you're not, most, most engineers aren't reading Foucault in their design classes. And then I'm also curious, because in that paper, you reference critical technical practice, which is a term coined by Philip E. Uh, Agre, which involves a split identity, one foot planted in the craft of work and design and the other foot planted in the reflexive work of critique. So I'm curious if you can speak to both those issues uh, as they kind of play out in these larger uh, conversations. Uh, yeah. Could you, I guess, rephrase the question? I couldn't work out which bit was a question. Got it. Or it, it just, it just, just to hear you, you comment on, on kind of both, both these issues. So thinking about how the importance of integrating feminist and ethical epistemology and machine learning systems and, if, and how that's involved with kind of uh, critical technical practice. What, yeah, just sharing your thoughts on those two issues. I mean, I think they, they are intertwined. They are heavily intertwined. Um, I can't imagine a better approach to AI that doesn't go through um, sort of feminist theory, um, both because, well, I'm biased. Like that's that's my sort of theoretical wheelhouse. So like, it would be weird for me to say, nah, this thing I spent five years on bollocks, completely useless, ignore it. Um, but also because I think that a lot of the problems that we're facing with AI, you know, we are told that they are new problems, right? that they're very complicated and technical problems and that um, we wouldn't understand and that no one's ever, ever faced these problems before. And I think that that's a very convenient thing for us to be told because what it basically says is um, anything that goes wrong, don't at me. Like it's never happened before, therefore we could never have predicted or expected it and therefore it's fine. Um, but a lot of the issues that we are looking at are issues of, okay, questions of power in uh, representation, questions of the concentration of economic resources, um, questions of who gets left with the scut work and who gets credited, questions of what aspects of existence are monetizable and therefore valuable and what aspects are. And these are not new questions. These are very, very old questions. These have been old since um, the question of uh, when Adam wove an Eve span, who then was an Englishman, right? These are literally millennia old questions of justice and power. And um, one of the things that I appreciate about feminist theory, and one of the reasons I use it is because these questions are not definitely not new questions to feminist theory. Like a lot of feminist theory is trying to articulate ways through this and has been for a good, good century now, right? Um, and in terms of like the sort of critical technical practice angle, the, the Agri's point there, Agri comes to it from a really interesting perspective. So Agri's background was that he was sort of old school AI person. 
Um, he came up with sort of symbolic and phenomenological AI in the 80s at MIT. And then to paraphrase him, he moved to Berkeley, read a load of Derrida and lost his mind. Um, and then sort of like showed up on a load of sociologist doorsteps, literally being like, hey, could you teach me phenomenology? Like I would love, I would love to learn about phenomenology. And so um, he ends up in this weird space of having the critical tools, but also having the technical background. And the point he's trying to make is to say, okay, if you just have the technical tools, you can never think your way out of the box for the simple reason that, you know, a spanner is a spanner. You are never going to imagine that if, if you, if all you have is a spanner, everything that you design is going to look kind of like a nut and you're never going to be in a situation where you have something that is non nut like and therefore never going to imagine or be able to imagine needing a screwdriver or needing a chisel or so on and so forth. Um, critical thinkers, really good for that. They can create chisels until the cows come home. But you don't necessarily know that their chisels work. And they don't necessarily know that their chisels work because they have never built the chisel. They have never done the engineering. And so what Agri was getting at when he talks about this critical technical practice is the idea of um, moving the two forward together, of saying, OK, well, what if we engage in critical thought so that we can imagine things outside the technical space? But we also actually experiment with implementing those critical thoughts, those critical approaches. What if we not only theorize like, hey, federated AI would be a solution through this. What if we actually try implementing it? we'll probably learn some things about the viability of the critical thought and about the space we have to maneuver in the technical artifacts from doing so. Um, and to me, I think that that's really nicely tied to feminist theory, right? It's really tightly tied to critical theory more generally. Like Marx had that line, right, of the point is not to describe the world, but to change it. There's always, I think, been a sort of active activist participatory angle to a lot of critical theory in theory. Um, but what Agri is getting at is, is the desire to turn it into practice. Say like, you know, we shouldn't just be adding, and someone should implement this maybe, to the like future work section of papers and then being like, all right, I'm done. Um, we should actually be implementing it. Uh, and one of my favorite examples of this that's being deployed is a project by a team at UC San Diego, including and centered on Lily Irani. Uh, it's called Turcopticon. And they took sort of like critical theory about surveillance and the panopticon and the way that Amazon Mechanical Turk, you know, works to not only control people, but as a way of controlling them, separate people into individuals who can then be coerced through uneven power dynamics to doing work without knowledge and collective backing about who is a good person to work for, who is not, how much should I be expecting from this? Um, and then they actually built a tool to reverse that. Like they built these platforms where mechanical Turk workers can collectively share their knowledge about how much are they getting paid? Like who is a bad person to work for? Who is a good person to work for? Um, hey, here's a really good opportunity that I don't have time to pursue, but like someone should, that kind of thing. Um, and it's one of my favorite projects because it is attempting to merge this sort of 
theory and practice. They didn't just go, well, we wrote a long piece about the Panopticon and Amazon Mechanical Turk, and uh, that's good for my tenure package, so I'm done now. Um, they actually went out and built the damn thing. That's pretty cool. Uh, I think we'll we'll skip question three, Akanksha, and then we'll jump right to the, the last two questions. But before we do that, so Oz, I... I've heard you say in the past, I, I think it was you that said it, uh, talking about how critical theorists are are working in the morgue and engineers are in the surgery room. And there's this idea that, yeah, the, the surgeons are kind of actively working on live bodies and then the, the critical theorists are uh, kind of seeing cause of death. Can you can you say a little bit more of that? Was that you that said that? Um, sort of. It, I ran into it in, or ran into like a phrase to that effect in, I want to say it was something ridiculous, like a wiki quote page or something, like years and years and years ago. And I thought it was such a good metaphor that I kind of, you know, took it and cited it and like layered on top of it and have been trying to find where the hell I found it for the last couple of years with absolutely no luck. It's yours um, now. As as I, I'm, I'm officially crediting it, you with it. <laughs> well, thank you. But as soon as I find out whose it actually is, I will be running around like a blue-assed fly being like, no, no, credit this person. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the phrase, I, I guess to like paraphrase the paraphrase, it's kind of um, this idea of, you know, being a, yeah, being a critical theorist is a lot like being a coroner. Um, First, our problem, our, our, our task is to find out what the bodies died of. And second, no surgeon has ever enjoyed having some stranger in scrubs burst through the door of their operating room saying, I have for you a litany of your past failures. So it's, you know, we, we are, it, it gets to the fact that we are or tend to be like kind of negative, can be a bit, uh, isolated from the practicalities of dealing with live bodies full of loopy bits that still move. Um, and we aren't the most popular people in a lot of spaces. But I also use this to point out like, okay, if that's all you have to say about sort of critical theory, why are they critical theorists? And the answer is because it's really important to know what the last patient died of. And it's really important to be able to share that with the surgeon. And you're not doing it to say, hey, you're a fuck up. Because all surgeons kill people, just like all engineers introduce bugs. And all platforms have edge cases. Our point is not to say, like, you screwed one thing up one time, so you're a bad person and you should, um, you know, go to hell, which in a computer science environment, I don't know where it would be, but I do know that they make you write Java there and it's no fun. <laughs> um, our point is to say like, hey, here's how your last patient died. Now that you know that, you can maybe not kill the next patient the same way. We're not saying that you won't kill the next patient. You might still kill the next patient. But if you do, it will be in a new way. And at least no one will have died avoidably. And so that's, yeah, that's why I kind of, uh, I, I have a, a fondness for uh, that analogy is because it gets at like, you know, not just the, the cynical, the uh, we're not very popular. And sometimes the surgeon thinks we're interrupting and doesn't know what, um, and that we don't know what we're doing. It also gets at the, yeah, but we're doing this for a reason. Um, we're doing this because, yeah, 
surgeons save lives, but coroners help surgeons get better at saving lives. And, you know, that's important unless, unless you think that you're perfect and in fact, God, which with actual surgeons is pretty possible. And, and I'm sure some data engineers might feel the same way. I could not possibly comment. <laughs> okay. Uh, should we transition to the last uh, two questions? Yeah. So to end it off, what advice would you give to young researchers interested in contributing to the responsible deployment of AI and kind of tacked onto that? What is one book that you would recommend to social scientists or social scientists to be and one book that you'd recommend to budding engineers and computer scientists? The advice I have, I guess, is um, be broad rather than deep. Uh, I'm not, like I said, 13 papers, and I've genuinely forgotten how many chapters, and I'm working with the US ambassador to the Vatican, and like, I'm not particularly smart. Like, that's important to underscore here. I am middle to high smart. The thing I'm good at is synthesis. It's being able to pluck things from different domains and be like, hey, this thing looks like this other thing. And it's really, really helpful for thinking your way out of jams. And so that's why I say broad rather than deep. Um, if you are an expert in 100% of one area, that is great. But if you want to be able to be flexible, to come up with new solutions, to avoid old problems, there is nothing better than knowing like 80% of five areas, which takes about the same amount of time as learning like 99% of one. Um, so be broad rather than deep. That, that's what I found works for me. Uh, you know, read the technical books, sure, but also read the cultural analyses, read the sociology texts. I was about to say read the economics books, but like, I read the books about e economics books, maybe. Um, economists need to learn to write before I'll happily recommend anything by economists. Um, and along those lines, like the two books I'd recommend the most is uh, if you are a social scientist who is looking at AI from the outside, I would really, really recommend reading um, uh, Artificial Knowing, Gender and the Thinking Machine by Alison Adam, which I think is a really beautiful example of how to do sort of like applied practical critical work. And if you are in computer science looking out, um, I would recommend Philip Agri's um, Computing as Human Experience or Computers as Human Experience. I can never remember. Um, you know, it's written by an ML guy, like someone who Hubert Dreyfus once wrote a paper that opened, Philip Agri corrected me about a thing and he was right. Um, it's the only thing I've ever read that cites Maurice Merleau-Ponty and Marvin Minsky in the same like book. It's, it's a really great intro to, okay, so you're in AI and you want to maybe think more broadly, where do you go to do that? It's a great jumping off point. And that concludes our episode. We want to thank Oz for sharing their insights and knowledge on data curation for good, AI systems, and gender considerations in computer science, which have all been proved necessary for a responsible deployment of AI. We hope that these important conversations continue, 
as the age of AI dawns upon us all. As our last episode of this series, we encourage you to continue the conversation with others about the topics described and deeply think about the ways in which we can deploy AI in a responsible, ethical, and safe way that protects each person affected by its use. Stay tuned for a future series of the Responsible AI Podcast.